you have your Bibles, you can open them to Genesis and chapter 17. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at a snapshot, or a few snapshots in the life of Abraham and his wife Sarah. Um, we'll be skipping around a little, so if you have a Bible with you, keep it open. We're going to be looking at, at several passages. We come to Abraham at this point in his life, he is 99 years old. He, 25 years earlier, he was promised by God to have children and commanded to move to the promised land, and he has acted in faith and gone in that direction. Well, some time had gone by, and uh, he hadn't had a child and hadn't had a child, and so he and his wife Sarah got the creative idea that he would take a concubine and have a child through her, and maybe God would fulfill the promise that way. So 13 years prior, he had slept with his concubine Hagar, and they had a son named Ishmael, and God has appeared to Abram 13 years later and said, that's not how it's going to be. Gives him the sign of circumcision, and then he gets specific about the promise that he is going to give him. And uh, we'll pick up at verse 15 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, i.e., not Hagar. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We'll stop there for now and pray, and then we'll continue reading as, as we go through. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now um, from hundreds of different places. Some of us are hurting very deeply, and we need your healing grace. Some of us are simply tired, and we need renewal. Some of us are joyful and glad, and we need our hearts again refreshed and to taste anew of your glory. And all of us, Lord, need you. And all of us need change, and we need your spirit to accomplish that in us through the preaching of your word. Lord, we long for your glory. We long for renewal, and so we ask in your name and by your spirit that you would do that for us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, years ago, I was a, a youth minister, and every summer I would take my students in my senior high youth group to a, a conference called Reformed Youth Movement. And every year on the last night of the conference, this man named Darwin Jordan would get up in front of a thousand high school students and their youth ministers, and he would just laugh. Uh, he had a, basically a comedy routine where he would laugh different ways. He would laugh like the person who snorts when they laugh, and he would laugh, and then, and I won't do it, but he would inhale, you know, the, you know when you snort when you laugh, and he would do the big inhale laugh, there was a, you know, who, who laughs and can't 
They sound like they're about to have an asthma attack. Or he would laugh, like when you laugh at a joke that isn't really funny, but you laugh out of social obligation and you say, <laughs> ah, the end of the joke, like some of you are doing now. And every year, he did it every year, and every year the thousand students, especially those who returned, looked forward to it. And all of us, all around the room, by the end of it, we would be laughing hysterically, laughing till we cried. And it was amazing to see sort of the power of laughter, how we longed for it, how we wanted to cheer for it. What was also so great about his routine is that he, he showed the different nuances that a laugh can have and all the different things it can mean. Well, in these passages we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see different sorts of laughing in the life of Abraham and, and in our lives and hopefully glean something from that. So, first of all, the first laugh we just saw as Abram receives the news from God and he laughs. I want to call this first laugh the laugh of incredulity. I don't really believe this laugh. I call it incredulity and not hardened unbelief because I think there is at least some sort of respect. It says here in uh, verse 17, then Abram fell on his face and laughed after receiving the news from God. I don't think that that means that Abraham was laughing so hard that he literally fell um, fell over laughing. Everywhere else that phrase is used in the Bible, fell on his face. It's a sign of reverence, awe, respect, even worship. So he receives this unlikely, honestly somewhat ridiculous news from God that he at the age of 100 and his wife at the age of 90 are going to bear a child. <laughs> he laughs. Lord, you can't possibly really mean that even goes on to argue to, to, to negotiate God you know I know you don't really mean that I have Ishmael he's 13 he's doing fine let's let the covenant be with him we figured it out let's let's do it this way you can't really mean that quick question where do you laugh incredulously at God we'll try this one on for size um, love your neighbor have you met my neighbor? Come on, really? I mean, I'll mow the lawn, but I don't want to have a conversation with him, right? Or step it up a notch, love your enemy. The person who is against you, who doesn't like you. God, you, I know I should tolerate them or not take vengeance, but love them. Or what about this? Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Not go be the light of the world. You are the light of the <laughs> Not me. I'm not really a beacon of hope to other people through God's grace in my life. Uh, that, I'm not the one for the job, God. You don't really mean that. Listen, God knows that these sorts of commands are, in a sense, laughable, ridiculous. He knows what he's saying to Abraham is far-fetched laughable but he means it you are the light of the world but we'll move on that's the first laugh the laugh of incredulity in Abraham's unbelieving reaction to God we're going to fast forward to chapter 18 starting at verse 9 we'll see the second laugh what has happened here God has, has left and then has come back three strange men have sort of appeared out of nowhere and God somehow is present in them he is speaking through them in a theophany, and Abram has fixed a meal for them. He's, he's sitting down with them, and Sarah is inside the tent. We pick up at verse 9. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? 
And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, in case you hadn't picked up on that, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? (laughs) The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And we'll stop there. This second laugh, I think, is a step farther than the incredulous laugh of Abraham. I think there's a couple clues in the text that would say it's more than incredulity, it's a step farther, it's a step into cynicism. It's a cynical laugh. By cynicism, I mean a jaded negativity and distrust. You can see it in her language of derogatory uh, speech towards herself. She says, after I am worn out. The commentators point out that this is, this is not just a figure of speech for being elderly. It's a, it's a, she's saying, I'm dried up. I'm an old bag of bones. Nothing can do anything for me. Well, what's she cynical about and what are we cynical about? Well, first, as we just saw, she's cynical about herself. I'm worn out. I'm nothing. I'm useless. God can't use me. Are you cynical about yourself? I'm never going to change. I'm just this way. This is the way that I am and nothing's ever going to renew me or I've blown it. You don't know what I've done and it's too late for me. Something is wrong with me that's not wrong with everyone else and I'm worse and God can't use me. What else is she cynical about? She says, now that I am worn out and my Lord is old, She's cynical not just about herself, she's cynical about others, saying, not only am I unfit, my husband is unfit. Are you cynical about others? You can't trust anybody. (laughs) They're all going to betray you. Nobody means what they say. They're all going to let you down. And ultimately, she's not just cynical about herself and about others, but she's cynical about God. She's saying, this is impossible. And this isn't the first time she's heard this promise. You know, she's been promised that she's going to have children for a long time now. And you can hear in her laughter. Yeah, Abraham mentioned this promise, God, 25 years ago. And we're here in the middle of nowhere. So don't let me hear it again. I'm going to laugh it off. Are you cynical about God? Why are we cynical? It's what she's cynical about. She's thinking about herself, others, and about God. But why? Why is she cynical and why are we cynical? Uh, the first main reason is because she's hurt. You can hear it in her voice, can't you? You can even hear it in what she says. She says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
The one thing that she's longed for and hoped for for all of these years, the main earthly desire of her heart is to have a child. And now it's being dangled in front of her one more time. And she says, no, not this time. It's hurt for too long. I'm going to keep it at a distance. Kurt Vonnegut, an author and something of a cynic, says this about laughter. He says, laughter and tears are both responses to frustration and exhaustion. I myself prefer to laugh since there is less cleaning up to do afterwards. You can hear the cynicism. (laughs) You're not going to hurt me again. I'm not going to open myself up to another person and just get burned one more time. The laughter, the cynicism is a way of protecting yourself from being hurt in response to hurt that you've experienced. Where have you been hurt? Hundreds of ways. You can't live in this world without other people hurting you and without the whole fallen system of this earth in one way or another betraying you with either death or distrust broken relationships. The irony, though, is that as she attempts to protect herself from further hurt, she's actually cutting herself off from the pleasure that's offered to her. She's just received wonderful news, and in the moment, she can't experience joy because she doesn't want to be hurt. She doesn't want to be healed because it hurts too much to even be told. It's one of the ironies. Where are you disappointed? Where are you hurt? By people, by others, or by God? And are you a cynic? Let's move on. Another cause of cynicism, not just our hurt, but our pride. See, cynicism and the laugh of cynicism assumes your own omniscience. It assumes that you know everything. That jaded negativity and distrust of others assumes that you see through that person. I know everything. I know that you don't really mean that. You can't possibly mean that. And so in our pride, we assume that we know their real motives and we can get behind them and we can see that it's really a lie and a sham and we don't trust them. And then, also in our pride, we draw a negative conclusion about that other person, about how they are disingenuous, untrustworthy. I've heard that line before and I know you don't really mean it. So, come on. Um, Now, I'm not advocating um, being hopelessly naive and you know, buying things on TV that are sold in, in the middle of the night. Because you can trust people, right? Let's trust people. Let's not be jaded and cynical. Um, Jesus said we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We have to be shrewd and aware and not naive and yet innocent and not, not the cynical, condemning, jaded, negative conclusion that we draw. But very often, once if you are... Wise as a serpent, you do see that people do have false motives. And they do hurt you. And sometimes we can be duped into thinking that because we know something, that we have a right to be cynical. Um, I remember a moment in seminary. And if you've ever known a seminary student, uh, we tend to be something of know-it-alls. And my generation in particular tends to be pretty jaded and cynical. I'm the Seinfeld generation, and we want to laugh at everything and distrust authority and not take things seriously because we might get hurt. There was a moment where one of our professors recognized this. He had seen it. He had heard it in some of our conversations and he stopped and he looked at all of us and he was this British man and he would look down over his glasses and when he looked over his glasses, you were in trouble. And he looked out at us. He said, some of you think because you're right 
that you have the right to be a cynic. Well, I've got something to tell you. Jesus isn't cynical about you. And he has every right to be. He was silent. <laughs> it, 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 it was as if he had taken a spear through our chest and rammed us into the wall. Was, oh, he, he, he had us. He had us pinned. And Jesus is gracious and kind. And he knows everything about you, all of your mixed motives. But he doesn't come to the jaded, negative, cynical conclusion. I'll move on. That's our pride. Finally, another cause of cynicism is unbelief. That's the most obvious one. And unbelief and pride always go hand in hand. But God asks Sarah the question, is anything too hard for God? And of course, her cynical laugh answers that question resoundingly, yes. This is too hard for you. A hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman making a baby is too hard for you. What's too hard for God in your life? Who's too hard for God in your life? The person that you've written off and said, they're never going to change, I'm never going to change. Well, notice how God responds. He sees through her cynicism and he calls her out. He says, why did Sarah laugh? And then how does Sarah respond? She says, I didn't laugh. And then how does he respond? Oh, no, you did. God's a good counselor. A little side note here. You need friends like this in your life, and you need to be a friend. A friend who can tell when you're really, really bluffing here. When you say, I'm not angry at her. I am just so frustrated. <laughs> you need that friend who says, no, you're, well, you're angry, right? Let's just name it. Bring it out. And yet he's not condemning. Why does, it, why, does, why does she lie? Why does she stay both hidden in the tent and then hidden behind this very obvious lie to the living God, by the way? The text says it's because she was afraid. Well, what's that sound like? It sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden after the first sin. And what do they do? They run for the bushes and hide because they were afraid. And what does God do? He says, come out. Come into the exposure. Come in to the truth and see how I am going to bless you. And notice that he's not a cynic about her. When he repeats back to her what she says, he deletes the derogatory language. He says, Why did Sarah say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? He deletes the phrase that I am worn out. So he's not cynical about her. And yet he's very truthful and names right where she is and won't let her get away with the lie. Because he's then going to go on to show her that the promise is true, that he is going to bless her. That's the second laugh, the laugh of the cynic. And now we're going to look at the third laugh. Look at chapter 21 if you still have your Bible open. First laugh, the second laugh, and now the third laugh. Chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Several things have happened here. We're skipping through the life of Abraham. The issue of Sodom and Gomorrah happened, but we're picking up the thread that runs through. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The third laugh is the laugh of joy. The laugh of joy that comes from redemption, that comes from promise fulfilled. Notice the language of the text in the first few verses. In four different ways, God says that he fulfilled his promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. He brought a son which God had spoken to him and that Abraham circumed his son as God had commanded. God speaks. He promises. And then he fulfills that promise. He acts. He does. He works. And when we see that happen, our hearts are filled with joy. And that is what happens to Sarah. Now look at the, the nature of this laughter, this joyous laughter. It's consuming. Now it doesn't delete all of the pain of her life. But it does transform it. It does renew it. It consumes it. She says, the Lord has made laughter for me. And as she describes why she's laughing, the fact that she was 90 and had gone through so much pain only adds to the joy doesn't negate the pain, but it overwhelms it. It consumes it. It renews it. It transforms it. It redeems it. Her pain is transformed into joy when God fulfills his promise. Another thing about this sort of laughter is that it's contagious. What does she say? God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. The kind of joy that when it's shared and when it's seen, people can't help but join in with it. Recently, I was sitting on the campus at William & Mary on, on the UC Terrace, and there was someone that appeared to be an alum returning, and she spotted a friend of hers across the way, and they hadn't seen each other in some time, and the friend jumped up, and they yelled and screamed and waved their arms in the air, and they came up to each other, and they were hugging each other and jumping up and down and laughing. And there was about, I'd say, 15 or 20 of us sitting at different tables sort of observing this. And as I looked, I was sitting with a friend and we were talking and we stopped our conversation and watched and we couldn't help but laugh. We were laughing at them because they were being ridiculous. We were laughing because they were so happy that we just made us happy. And I looked around. Everyone on the UC Terrace all at once was laughing. Laughing with this contagious laughter of the joy that comes when two friends are reunited. Well, how much more about when God reunites himself to his people, when God fulfills his promises to them, does that joy overflow into our life? And then when others see that joy, they want to join in with it and laugh along with you and see the joy and taste of it and experience it for themselves. Now, this is wonderful that God did this for Sarah. But there's more here than just the story of God giving a nice elderly couple something that they've longed for though that would be wonderful if that's all that it was, but there's more. 
So you remember the promises to Abram from the very beginning were that his offspring would come and that through his offspring all nations of the earth would be blessed. This isn't just a fulfilled promise to one couple. It's a fulfilled promise to the whole world in the birth of Isaac. So that gives us not just the third laugh, but the last laugh. They name the son, the promised son, Isaac, which means laughter or he laughs. And in the New Testament, looking back on Abraham and Isaac, we see that the fulfillment, the one who arrived, the promised son, was ultimately Jesus Christ himself, the true seed of Abraham, in whom we become the children of Abraham, the one in whom and through whom all the promises to Abraham and Sarah are fulfilled, the true son of laughter who was born not to an elderly woman, but to a virgin, an even more unlikely mother. He would come into this world that through him, the offspring of Abraham, all the earth would be blessed and have joy and have laughter. And he did enjoy laughter with his disciples, but he also experienced the jeering and sneering laughter of the world as he was persecuted, as he was put in a mock trial, prosecuted as an innocent man, flogged and murdered. And the night before all of that happened to him, he sat with his disciples and he had the Lord's Supper. He had that last supper with them and he held a cup. And at that moment, the cup represented that suffering that he was about to experience. But he said, I'm not going to drink this cup. I'm not going to drink wine again. I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. A cup of joy, a cup of blessing, pictured in the coming of the king as he returns, and the joy that we will experience when he comes anew, and he will laugh, he will bring joy, he will renew all things. I want to read you some lyrics from a song Um, It's by a band called uh, Page France, and some of the lyrics are a little bit silly, but it's a picture of when Jesus comes back, and the imagery is a little bit interesting. I'm not a very creative person, and so I need artists and poets to help me think freshly about what the Scripture says. I can say Jesus is going to come back, and isn't that going to be nice, but it doesn't have quite the same ring. But I I want you to bear with some of the silliness, though it's not that much more silly than the than the psalm saying that trees will clap their hands and as we sang a moment ago that sun and stars would sing. And yet here we go. Listen to these lyrics about the return of Jesus. The singer says this, I will sing a song for you, Jesus, and you will stomp your feet for me. And the bears and the bees and the banana trees will play kazoos and tambourines and Jesus will dance while we drink his wine with soldiers and thieves and a sword in his side. And we will be joy, and we will be right, and Jesus will dance while we drink his wine. It's a picture of joy. It's a picture of laughter, of that real final laughter when God will have the last laugh, when he will return to this fallen, broken creation, to his fallen and broken people, and restore them and renew them and transform our sorrows into joy and we will laugh and he will laugh and the new creation will laugh right along with us and we will be glad. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you renew us, that you transform us and though we come to you broken and shattered and even cynical, 
You love us and are gracious to us and have promised your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would be with us today and that you would begin to bring that final laughter to bear on our lives now, to give us hope, to persevere, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to honor you and worship you as our King as we stand to do it now. In your name we pray. Amen.